Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash on which this podcast is being recorded. We do land acknowledgments as a way to honor the ground on which we stand and as a way of giving thanks. Land acknowledgments are also a small act of reconciliation that recognize the traditional territory of the indigenous people who called the land home before their arrival of colonizers, and in many ways still do call it home. The Gabriel Lino Tongba Springs Foundation is a nonprofit corporation established to preserve and protect the Karun Vagna Springs area at University High School. The foundation is a community organization that is involved in educating the public about history as well as preserving the cultural and historical resources of the area. The foundation has created a cultural center at the site, which now serves as a repository of artifacts, historical documents, photo collections, and other historical resources directly associated with the history of the Tongva people as well as the high school. In this episode, I speak with an educator, filmmaker, and former chairperson of the Black Association of Documentary Filmmakers West, Denise Hamilton. In our conversation, we talk about Bad West, her latest documentary interactive project called Race Relay, and what it's like to be educating the next generation of international documentary filmmakers. Because Denise and her family have deep ties to the Black liberation movement that go all the way back to Bethune-Cookman College and the Tuskegee Institute, the song for this episode is Mavis Staples' rendition of the gospel classic, We Shall Not Be Moved. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in July 2020. So I just want to talk about uh, initially like how we met. So we met well over 10 years ago when I came to my first Bad West meeting. And that was your first Bad West meeting? That was my really? first meeting, yeah. That was my first wow. meeting, yeah. And for those of okay. you who don't know, but you will know, um, Bad West is the Black Association of Documentary Filmmakers West. And um, that is essentially how I got into my start into documentary because when I first came to LA, I was actually wanting to get into the narrative side and was taking a lot of classes in screenwriting. So um, someone, actually a friend of mine or an acquaintance mentioned to me that actually Bad West was having their meeting that night at the Writers Guild. And I was actually going to be at the Writers Guild anyway, like reading scripts. I said, okay, I'll just like pop up. Because I think you, you were at the Writers Guild at that time, I believe. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So I, I went mm -hmm. in and signed up and I like, paid my little money. I think it was maybe $5 at the time because I wasn't a member. And um, Denise got up. And um, you, you talked about how you were looking for a, a writer for the newsletter. And I, I volunteered because you needed someone who had pages and I had pages and um, started writing a newsletter. And um, a few months later, um, Lynn Gofarb and Allison Sotomayor came to a Bad West meeting to screen a longer teaser trailer of their film, Bridging the Divide, Top Rally, Politics of Race. I wrote an article about it. They were looking for a PA. I put the ad in our newsletter, applied for the job too. <laughs> and got the and, job. And got the job. And um, that's how I, I got into documentary. So I just, <laughs> all that happened just because I happened to attend a Bad West meeting. And I am wow, wow. forever, forever grateful 
um, and like particularly to you, because I you pointed out during my little birthday celebration that when I volunteered to do newsletter, you said somebody you won't say who it is, but somebody <laughs> said we wanted want this new person we don't know to do this, <laughs> and you advocated for me. It's true, <laughs> and I advocated for you because I say go with the person who shows the enthusiasm, and you were so enthusiastic. I said hey let that person be the one yeah. and prove that they can do it and you did over the years you have constantly put out a wonderful newsletter so i want to personally <laughs> publicly thank you tony for all the work that you have done you've really brought a professionalism to the look and to the information because we can't be responsible for gathering all that and with your new position you have access to a lot more information that just helps the newsletter get better so thank you so much for that yes oh, i remember oh, i remember you, that thank distinctly. you thank you um yes yeah, so i want to talk to you about uh well first of all how did you get started with bad west like what was your entry into bad west ah okay well um Prior to Bad West, I had been in New York working as a producer of segment mm -hmm. for television. I had also done some uh, field producing and directing for some internationally shot documentaries. And, um, you know, I had done some really serious stuff like going to Rwanda and doing pieces on AIDS in Africa. And it was good, but at that same point, I was beginning to feel like New York was bringing me down because there were a lot of homeless people in the street. And to walk down the street and to walk over people who were homeless, I said, there's something wrong with this. I should not get accustomed to this. I need to get out of this environment. So I came to Los Angeles. Are you are you from New York originally? I'm from New Jersey. I'm from Jersey City, which is, I the claim to fame to Jersey City is that it's located right behind the Statue of Liberty. So whenever you see the Statue of Liberty, that's Jersey City behind it, okay? I, mean, I know that, so, okay. Yes, you see. So in fact, the statue is closer to New Jersey than it is New York. The only problem is we get the back view. Okay. <laughs> so, but um, growing up in Jersey was beautiful because it's right across the river from Manhattan. I would go into Manhattan constantly um, and see a lot of plays, off-Broadway, Broadway, Broadway um, growing up with musicals, going to see Radio City Music Hall every summer and winter to see the special events. So I grew up thinking I was a New Yorker in my head. And so, yeah, I'm you know, proud of being from Jersey City, but I'm also a New Yorker because I spent 18 years there and I went to school in New York, Syracuse University, went to Howard also, got my master's at NYU. So, but I think I'm a, a New Yorker, right? So then I came to, um, to LA and, um, you know, I'd already done some documentaries. And at that time, I thought that I was just gonna focus on television. But I was still open. And when I heard that St. Clair Bourne was inviting people to come to think about this new organization that he was starting, I was there. I was there at the first big event meeting at the WGA. And um, at that time, St. Clair um, had already started the Black Documentary Collective in New York. And he was here saying, you know, we need to start an avenue where Black documentary filmmakers on the West Coast should be supported. So I was very much into that. I had experience in arts administration 
been um, in New York. I had been with the New York Foundation for the Arts. I had been with the National Endowment for the Arts is, uh, and you know, just a number of things. And I have a strong background in arts administration. I was even put on a Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts Commission. And I was on this commission with like Catherine Dunham. I mean, it's just like amazing. And I just, you know, and, and at some point I said, this is great. I have written proposals for the Roundabout Theater Company in New York. Um, I had gotten a, a grant from the New York Community Trust and all of these things said, okay, so you're a good administrator, but I really am an artist. Right, right. I don't want to go too far into this. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I made the break and I said, I need to get out of New York. I need to think of myself more as an artist. Let me go to LA and do some light stuff. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came out to LA, the organization GBGM Productions that I had done work with in New York, you know, they had, I had shot for them in Nicaragua and in Africa. Um, they wanted me to continue doing some work. And I said, well, wait a minute. I came out to LA to do some light stuff and get away from all this serious documentary stuff. Right. But it kept um, calling you back. They, yeah, because, you know, they were offering me a job. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to continue doing this. And that's when I sort of stumbled into, you know, um, Bad West. That We were forming it. And um, at that time. You were there at the beginning. At the very beginning. Yes, I was at the very first meeting. I still have some of the files of all those people. This was a huge room packed with people. And in fact, I remember he asked everyone to stand up and say what they did. And um, I happened to know that when I was at the New York Foundation for the Arts, that we'd actually given St. Clair Bourne a grant. Not that I was involved in that particular process, but when I stood up, I said, you know, St. Clair, I know that you've gotten money from the organization that I worked with, the New York Foundation for the Arts. I said, oh my God. So, you know, but I wanted to separate myself from being an arts administrator to being an artist. And so that's how it began. I was there from the very beginning. And so was David Massey and Joyce Guy, my co-officers. We were all there from the beginning. For those who don't know, um, tell us about a little bit about St. Clair Bourne and, and who who he was and who he was to the Black filmmaking community. Right, right. Okay. St. Clair was an amazing documentary filmmaker who had experience not only doing independent documentaries, um, like John Henry Clark, who's a famous um, historian, who's one of the founders of the Pan-African Studies movement, um, doing things for um, HBO, like Half Past Autumn, The Life and Works of Gordon Parks. He had done another thing for PBS called Paul Robeson, Here I Stand. And he was well known for taking uh, giant figures in Black history and really looking at them um, seriously, not just promoting the, the wonderful things that they did, but looking at them as human beings. And that was his thing, you know, to make sure that a documentary tells the full truth. It really covers an individual. And so he was an award-winning documentarian. And um, as I said, he started in New York with uh, a number of filmmakers there and then came out and said, let's start something here. So he was an advocate for helping people who want to do documentaries, get on their feet, be more professional. Um, he was also very political because he started something where every month they would show a film of interest to the Black and African diaspora that had something to do with helping us understand how we're all connected and moving forward. 
So um, he was a leader in his field. He was a leader in his field. Um, so he started uh, Bad West in 2003. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. he died um, in 2007. I think it was a brain aneurysm. And mm -hmm. so we were we just decided uh, that we were going to continue this. And lo and behold, look how many years it is later. And every time we have our annual function, I think to myself, I think St. Clair would be proud of us because we're still doing the same thing. We're still holding monthly meetings where young and developing and professional documentary filmmakers can come to get advice, to show off what they're doing, to explore what we as filmmakers should be looking at or can be looking at. So um, St. Clair was the impetus for all of that. Right. And one of the great things that I, I just appreciate about Bad West is just the diversity of filmmakers that, in, that are in a room in the meetings. And um, not just like African, pe people from all over the diaspora who are living in LA trying to make films, but also different experience levels. Like Bad West is very welcoming to those people who have, you know, have had like professional documentaries, done on like HBO or like on the major networks, um, but also um, should those who are interested in doing their first documentary, you know, and that's why we, yeah, yeah, we have something called um, Show 10 Talk 10, where regularly a couple of times a year, we invite people who are working on a piece to show 10 minutes of their piece so they can get 10 minutes of constructive feedback. And, and so that's open to anyone, whether or not you're a member of Bad West or not, because we know that the process of filmmaking can be a very lonely one. It's isolating. So you come and you bring your baby to us and just show a little bit of it. And then we'll, we can be encouraging by whatever you're doing. And that, um, always brings out uh, a variety of different types of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the monthly meetings are, are great. And well, I remember, the, I think the last monthly meeting we attended in person, was that the one that where I did the grant writing workshop or was there one I after that? I think so. Okay. I think yeah. so. But that's, you know, it, we're doing so much. I know, but that was, it was really great. Just like who was in the room because there is a filmmaker there and there with his mom. Who, I think he was like 12. Yeah. And he was, right. doing, I wish I could remember his name, but he had business cards and he was doing a film about vaping. You know, and he was, you know, he was asking questions about grant writing and, you know, and like it, it was amazing. And then we had someone who was like, I think in their 70s. Right. As well. Right. So, like, I, it was just a great, it was just a phenomenal space to be in. And it shows that you can create if you have an interest in creating a documentary, um, you can do that. And I feel like Bad West is so incredibly um, supportive. Absolutely. You can be um, a person who has an idea and we want to help you to develop that idea to make it as professional as possible. And people mm -hmm. are starting younger and younger these days, which is great because you can get your camera, you can get your um, editing program on your laptop, and that's fine, but we do want you to then know that this is a profession, that there is a way to handle this professionally, and that we encourage you to do that. And so, yes, it's really opening. Uh, yeah, and we, and we an tell avenue. you the truth with love. 
So that's right. <laughs> we do. That's right. Listen, there was one person I recall specifically who had done a lot of shooting and the subject was wonderful and the um, topic was wonderful, but they had done a lot of shooting that really just didn't look good. And one of our officers said, you know, I'm going to tell you this because I love you. I think you need to start over again because your footage really doesn't do its justice to the topic to the story you're trying to tell. So, um, you know, like you say, we do it with love and we're trying to help you understand how to do something professionally and that's important. So do you want to tell us about some of the new innovative ways because of COVID that um, Bad West is um, <laughs> adapting? Well, I don't know whether we have, we have innovative ways to okay. do it because I think we're all, we're all stuck in this situation where, you are, um, you're looking at a screen, but yes, we are interested in doing some technical things, which can be explained um, via Zoom. Uh, you know, all of these things in terms of publicizing your work and um, getting your work out there, these are the kinds of things that we're looking at for the future. Um, again, we're sort of restricted because shooting is, is down right now. And I know that there are some production companies that are looking at ways to do that. I mean, I heard that Tyler Perry, because of his very large studio, is able to bring people in and isolate them for two weeks to make sure everyone in the production is, and I think that's a great example. If there is a production entity that's willing to do that and then um, have people stay there including your makeup, your uh, composers, everyone to be under one roof where you can really develop and produce and shoot uh, without worrying about infecting each other, then that's great. And so I'm hoping that people will look at that. I also know that people are um, taking smaller crews which most documentary filmmakers use anyway. I mean, they usually only have two or three people crews and they are going and shooting uh, a subject if the subject is willing to have the crew with them. I know that people are beginning to use drones now. Um, one of my students, in fact, two of my students um, that had to go home to their countries because of COVID used drones to finish their final piece for the class. Oh, they did? Yes. Okay. And it was great. It was great. And it worked. So most of the interviews had been shot before and using drone footage to go outside and capture what's happening is a way that you can bring your piece outside or bring the outside in as opposed to having all of your interviews just having someone stare at their screen which is something else that people are doing i'm sure that when this is over in two or three years we're going to see a lot of films oh you, you said years <laughs> well no honey okay i'm being realistic i know i know you are i'm being I just very like i know <laughs> I know, but you know, most of the films that are coming up now are gonna be dealing, uh, they're gonna look very different. Tell us where you teach. I teach at the New York Film Academy, which is a very um, uh, internationally populated school. And so my students are anywhere from Saudi Arabia to Kazakhstan, to Peru, Colombia, China, a lot of Chinese students. And it is rare for me to have an American student in my class. Really? And it's actually, okay. yes, it's rare. And, um, and I love the fact mm -hmm. that it is so um, diverse culturally 
and um, country-wise because right. they learn so much from each other. Mm-hmm. And I and they're teaching me also because I love right. the whole idea that they're teaching me about their cultures. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of my students had to go back to um, Peru. Another mm-hmm. one had to go back to Italy. And a third one, oh, oh, India, okay. And so when they went back, they were working on their final projects for the semester and a lot of their interviews were canceled. Mm, So they went back to their countries and tried to pull in drone footage and other Mm -hmm. interviews of family members with their phones. And uh, it came out looking really great. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. Now there are a lot of students in the acting program that are American. Oh, but but not the documentary. Not the documentary, right. I think, I don't know what the particular call or draw is, but um, I, I think that Americans tend to look at documentaries as something that they can sort of do on their own. They don't need to go to a school to do. And so they're very anxious to just take out a camera and shoot and edit. And if they're very serious, and they tr- may try to go to the larger schools like U- USC, USC or, or UCLA. UCLA. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, NIFA really markets um, a lot of international students. And I understand we, we just, Bad Wisp was just talking to Film Independent and some other group. And they were saying that when they go around the world, they will everywhere run across students or people who are saying, yeah, we've been to NIFA and we really were involved. Really? And That's work. great. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So um, yeah, we do market. And I'm telling you, we have a lot of Chinese students um, and we have a lot of students, oh, from various communist countries, which is very informative because they really have to do well. They have gotten uh, scholarships or funding from their governments and they must do well. In some instances, if they don't do well, they will bring shame to their families and their families can actually lose their homes. Oh my goodness, it's that level. Yes, it can be that level. So that's why I'm getting students who are so dedicated to doing a good job. And it's really refreshing and it's amazing to me. So um, So what kind of stories are are they telling? They tell a lot of different stories. Usually they begin by telling something about their culture. And then they start looking at what they see coming over here. I have a lot of students that want to do pieces on um, homeless people in LA. And I say, okay, stop, because we've seen many stories like that before. You need to look, <laughs> you need to look at other things that are going on in this country. And so um, one of the things that I've been doing as an instructor and also now a member of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee at NIFA is to look at how we prepare these students who are coming from overseas to this country to see us in a realistic light. Because these people really don't see the real USA. Right. They only understand us through our media. That's right. Anybody That's right. who's traveled overseas, I American TV is I everywhere. Know. Very different. Yeah. And, and it's not the reality. And I recall one um, class where we were working on their editing 
and the editing system was down. So we had a little time to talk. Mm -hmm. And it was during the teacher strike here in LA. And my students, none of them who were American, one was from, um, again, one was from Peru, one was from Saudi Arabia, another one was from Colombia, um, one was Philippines. They said, why are the teachers um, striking? And I said, well, you know, they want better conditions and they want more money. And they said, well, this is the wealthiest country in the world. Why are teachers not getting enough money? And I, that opened a whole that, can that, of That's our question too. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent some time talking about that and, you know, I touched upon the fact that now our, our country is split between people who don't really want public education and put money on public education, but there's a whole charter school and private school. And so they're saying, well, why don't they want to put money in the public education? You know, and of course, I have to tell the real answer. You know, these are poor brown people, and they're not really interested in educating them. Well, what do you mean? And then it became a whole <laughs> lesson, and it ended up, Tony, being slavery 101, okay? Because they don't know that history. We don't even know that history. A lot of Americans don't even know the history of slavery in this country and how uh, indicative it is of the racism and also of the economic uh, support of this country based on slavery. A lot of people don't know like one of the, out, the positive outcomes of Reconstruction was actually the institution of a public school system. Yes, yes. Which educated, was going to educate everybody, including like poor whites. Right, but of then, course. Um, but then, you know, that got sidelined because, you know, of, um, of, what, of racism. A, a racism. <laughs> yeah. And when they sold us out, when they gave the South Reconstruction back, like in exchange for the presidency, but that's a whole other history. Yeah. And that's a whole other history that we won't even try to deal with today. Right. But the point was that uh, these students from all these different countries come here with a certain mindset about America, and then they want to do some pieces about America. And I say, okay, well, let's take a step back. You need right. to know a little bit more about this. And it's eye-opening to them, but it's also eye-opening to me to have them do pieces that incorporate their culture. So it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. It is challenging because, you know, I as a black woman also am facing a lot of people, males, let's say, for example, from Saudi Arabia, who have never had a had a female or a black woman. Black and female woman teacher. Yes. That can be challenging. And uh, so uh, it's like I say, it's a whole education unto itself. Right, right. It really is. But I love it. I really so, do love it because I know that I'm influencing mm -hmm. people from different cultures who really do want to go back to their countries to take the skill of documentary filmmaking and show what's happening in their own society. And it's almost like, I mean, you're not just teaching um, filmmaking, but also critical thinking and uh, but also like cross-cultural thinking in a way. So, I mean, you have all these students from all over the world. So what would you say, uh, like, for example, in Saudi Arabia, like what have you learned? Um, what kind of support is there for documentary filmmakers in Saudi Arabia? Well, um, it's hard to say. I know that they have lots of money and the people who come here tend to have lots of money. I had two female documentary filmmakers from Saudi Arabia. And that was wonderful. It really was. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, they want to stay in this country. So I don't know. I know that changes are being made. Certainly in the last couple of years, women can now drive in Saudi Arabia. 
you know, I don't want to say that I know that much about that culture to speak on how it is changing for filmmakers. Um, but I do know that the filmmakers who come here are changed. So, for example, uh, the woman, one of the women who came from Saudi Arabia began wearing a hijab. By the time she was finishing our class, she no longer wore that hijab. So I don't, I'm sure that influence was because of being in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether she actually went back to her country, but I know she was exploring staying here, as do many of our international students do. So it's interesting being a Muslim woman coming from another country and seeing different types of opportunities, but that's not to say that that aren't they are not as interested in going back to their cultures and their countries to do something else. So I am encouraging both, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like with that particular person, she wanted to stay considering the xenophobic climate that we're currently living in. So you mentioned your, the new committee that you're on, the, what is it, diversity and inclusion? In New York Film Academy, yes. Yes, uh-huh. okay. Um, so is that a new committee that, has been created in the wake of the George Floyd protests? No, it's been there for a while, but they have decided to reinvigorate some of the suggestions that a task force made two years ago. They did a very extensive report on how students were feeling in terms of being marginalized, not feeling as if they were a part of things. And And they had a great committee of instructors, chairpersons, students put together an extensive 70-page report, I believe. Some of which, some of of the um, uh, recommendations were taken, but it wasn't actively pursued. With the whole George Floyd thing, they said, you know, we need to pull this out and dust it off and see what we didn't do. And then also the word had gotten around that I do race relations circles. One of the things I do is that for the past five years, just on my own, because I think it's so important, um, I conduct race relations circles with this organization in Culver City called Common Peace Center for the Advancement of Nonviolence. And I've always been interested in race relations. And so I conduct this circle. When they found out that I did that, they said, oh, well, then you come and be the person to lead this discussion because we're going to have the president of the school, the decision makers in the room, and we need to talk to them. But because we've been here and we've been a part of this DEI committee and nothing really went as far as it should have, you coming in as a new person can sort of be the spokesperson for this. So let me tell you, I did. (laughs) I really came in and and did that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask, how is that going? Oh, it went well. It just happened a few days ago. Okay, okay. So, so far, so So, good. So far, so good, because in addition to it being a crash course on racial injustice because we said we need to start from why students feel marginalized in here we need to understand what white supremacy is and how it is part of the systemic institution of racism 
um, we need to just start from a very basic understanding of how that operates in different educational systems. So I had these clips that I brought in that were really good, a five minute clip on this, structural racism, a five minute clip from Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative talking about our, our culture and our society and saying, let's start from there. And then let's look at this document that you put together two years ago where there are certain things that you didn't really address. Let's address those. And then after that, we had the quote unquote decision makers break up into breakout rooms to talk about their concerns and issues around white supremacy, white fragility, and what can you do as an anti-racist, okay? And I made the definition. It's not enough to be silent anymore, a silent bystander and say, I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist, you have to be active. So we broke them up into breakout rooms. And then when they came back, they were smiling. And I said, oh, well then that means that it wasn't so bad, was it? <laughs> they said, no, and they each came up with a commitment. We, you know, because one of the questions was, um, as you are a decision maker, what kind of commitment can you personally make to assure that we're going to make changes in this school to involve more people? And the first thing, of course, we said was there have to be more people of color as decision makers. Boom. That's key, right? Um, this is such a diverse school, and yet there was only one. The chairman from our South Beach um, campus was Cuban. I said, that's good. Okay. But, you know. Burbank is very diverse. New York is very diverse. Where are the people? In LA, what LA is like what forty four percent Latinx? Yeah, yeah. Well, the percentage of people of color in our school is higher than that because again, we get people from all over the world, so it's international. So I said that's what we need to reflect, and they acknowledge that. We have a follow up now. And we will see. And, and I think that that is impinging on everyone now that we are in a sort of standstill in our society, that everyone relook at how systemic racism is affecting your organization and really understand that before you step out again, because we can't go back to normal. Normal wasn't working. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that COVID has definitely done is if people could not see what was happening, it's like, it's exasperated the inequities that already exist in society like to the point that really those who were in their bubble of like blissful denial um cannot like they've been kind of for they've been forced out of well it. you know that's one of the things that i also mentioned in this meeting after i asked them to raise their hand if they consider themselves a person of color and only one person did the cuban i said okay i'm going to go out on a limb and um assume that you didn't know last month that two black people were found hanging from a tree in california Okay. And I said, and the reason why you probably don't know that is because you probably live in a white bubble, even though you may have a few associates who are black, the main media caters to you and what you would be interested in hearing. So you're not going to know some of the information that I know being a person who's been forced to find other avenues to find information that is pertinent to me. So that alone means that you're going to be sheltered from information that you need to be hearing. And, uh, and I, it was true. They hadn't heard that. And a lot of people don't know about that because main media is not interested in, in saying things 
where it gets us upset. Like they said that the police said that these were labeled suicides. And I said, okay, I said, point number one, black people don't hang themselves from trees. Not in public, in trees, honey. Yeah, even, even those of us who struggle with depression, that is not the way we think about going because the historical implications of that. Of course. So, you know, if you don't know your history, and you are also uh, relying on only certain media, you're not going to know the truth. You're not gonna know what's really going on out here. And you do yourself a disservice and you also are perpetuating this whole, you know, internalized racism and institutional racism that's going on. And, but it also, if you look at the history, they've, they've always been blaming our deaths on suicide. When we get shot in the back, it's suicide. You know, when we get rolled up in carpets and uh, as in that, that young brother, I can't remember what it was, but his organs were removed. I remember that. Yeah, they, they reopened this case recently. That happened a few years ago. That was supposedly suicide. We are very creative in our, mm-hmm. our ways that mm-hmm. we commit suicide, apparently. And just kind of give a shout out to um, Jackie Olive's film, which is I think on Independent Lens, Always in mm-hmm. Season, um, where her, in that film, she looks at... Um, essentially this phenomenon of neo-lynching of black men hanging themselves from trees, you know, in this, in the modern century. Um, but I, I want to like try to, I want to stir the pot a little bit. Uh-oh. There, there's a show um, on Australian TV. I, I really love it. And like, I have insomnia. So sometimes I end up watching this like in the middle of the night, um, but it's called Q&A. And it's a news, it's a news talk show set in, um, it's in Sydney, Australia. And they had an episode, which I'm going to link to on your bio page when we put it up, um, Denise. Uh, it was a show called Hard Truths. And it was a, a panel in response to the protests around George Floyd, because there were actually George Floyd protests in Australia, but all, all around the world, as we know. Isn't that amazing? It's encouraging because more people are beginning to look at this and recognize that it's more than just George Floyd that we're talking about. Exactly. For those of you who don't know, um, uh, Aborigines in um, in Australia who actually refer to themselves as black, they refer to themselves as black, are actually like die at a large number uh, in, in police custody. But they had three mothers of um, three mothers who had lost their children to police um, brutality. And um, on the panel were two Aboriginal, one was an actor and, and um, two actors, N- N- Nakia Louis and Mine White Wyatt, and then an uh, uh, African Australian who is an activist as far as police brutality. Her name is Nayado Nuyong, and then two white male politicians. I won't say their names. So obviously, Nakia and Nayado and Mine, you know, the folks of color on the panel, were very very adamant about um, what was happening to Aboriginal communities. And in, in fact, the African-Australian Nayado Neon, she actually apologized to the two Aboriginal um, folks who were on the panel in, in the audience because um, she said, you know, I know the name of George Floyd, but I don't know the names of like Aboriginal men and women who have been killed at the, uh, the custody of police. Mm. That mm. makes me emotional, mm-hmm. you know. Ooh. Um, mm. Um, but one thing, like all three of them were pointing out to the white politicians, because the white politicians were talking about, oh, we need to have a dialogue, mm. we need to have a conversation, right. which like to me, when I hear those two things, I just, it just feels like gaslighting to me, mm-hmm. because 
But what Mine said, he was a comedian, he, he was, and he was not being funny on this day, honey. He was very passionate. He says, you know, we've been telling y'all what to do. I was about to say y'all. I, mm -hmm. I don't think they say y'all in Australia. But <laughs> Maybe that's, not. That's, that's my Southern mm -hmm. translation. We've been right. telling y'all what to do for, for years, and there have been committees and commissions, and you know what to do. You just don't want to. And the white politician was like, oh. Yeah, so like, my question is, um, what do you do when, and particularly, I know this is the conversations that's happening within, within the US, but also within the documentary, documentary communities, specifically when people are being, when white folks are being called out on their systemic racism, mm -hmm. particularly their white fragility, because I think the right. white fragility is something that's more prevalent in the documentary community. Right. There, there seems to be more concern about being um, called out and then they want to talk about it and but they think about talking about it is actually doing something about it. they just want to stop there so how do we navigate that when they're like oh we talked about it aren't we good ooh, ooh, ooh. and you know and then um black and brown and other and other bipoc are being basically still um not having access to those avenues avenues of power but these folks over here who still maintain the power like oh we're we're cool because we're chit chat right right no it it the first and foremost thing is that people of color need to be part of the decision making process at every single level and that starts from the top that is so very important and what we have been taught in some insidious way is that we don't have the power to do that and there's far more of us than there are of them and that's what i have to put the lay my foot down you know so the demands are that whatever position of power you are in we must be a part of that we must be at that table discussing it so that starts with, again, the kind of conversation we had at NIFA and said, it's not even only saying, well, we're going to bring on a person of color to represent. No, it's not one person. You need to just have more voices in the room, period. All right. Now, here's the thing. You want to change internally as an institution and the environment surrounding you. So, for example, what I said is it's not enough for an, an educational institution to look at how they're redoing their curriculum uh, to include uh, the points of view of people of color in what is being taught and decision makers on who is going to teach these classes and how you bring in certain people and whether or not you have funds for certain types of subjects that in the past you have um, overlooked. But then as an educational institution, you need to, to join with other organizations to then look at what's going on in the community to keep each other apprised of what you're doing so that you're saying, okay, we are a school doing this. What is your group doing? Then the other thing is you then form or work with alliances that are already in place. So that here, if you have a chamber of commerce, if you have businesses that are working, example in Burbank, okay, who's in that chamber of commerce? You need to have all the organizations representing different people of color in there okay so that you say as a business entity within this city are we looking at how to change racist practices within our our businesses okay and then as that group 
you're getting more and more power to then go to a police station and say, hi, we're the Chamber of Commerce and we want to work with you on developing policy for community policing. Now, the police, com the police group has to listen to you. They really do because they're supposed to be representing the business community. And if the business community goes to them and says, we want to work with you on this, they're going to listen. Now, they may pay lip service, but if you're insistent and you keep at it, they need to be dealing with you. But you can't go as an individual to try to change. You need to go as a group so that uh, to, the first thing is to understand what systemic racism is. If you've got X number of white people in your group, you need to have people of color working with you. And that's the bottom line. There's no more talking about it. Just put us in there. Find the people to do that. And there are people and they're qualified to be in that room with you because you should not be making any decisions for people of color if there are not people of color in the room. And we're not talking about just one person. Nothing about us without us. Absolutely. And I am encouraged because I'm beginning to see other groups reach out to say, oh, we should be reaching out to other organizations of color to be working in, in that. And so everyone should be reaching out to work together. And that's not a kumbaya thing. It's just we need to be strategic about making changes. And it's not about waiting for someone to offer, but it's like, listen, we're doing the same thing. We are, we're in education. We need to hold ourselves accountable for the kind of education we're teaching. And as educational institutions, we need to be working with other businesses because who graduates from these schools eventually go to work in business. So we need to be working together on what that means, you know, and then we as businesses need to be dealing with the police groups in our vicinity. So, you know, and it sounds, it sounds really um, pie in the sky to some respect because we haven't done things like this before, but that's the reason why we've been put on hold as a society, as a culture, as a, as a country, to take the time to see how we can connect so we can make changes because we need to do things differently than we've, than we've done before. It you has really to. We have it to. It really has to. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. to. Yeah. So that's what I say, that you find your tribe. Find who is thinking similarly to you. And then form an alliance with another tribe. And together, then you approach another group and say, we need to be working together. We must be working together in order to make any kind of changes. It's not about white versus this person versus that. It's like, People of color need to pull together and there are more of them than there are the other people and say, look, look at the numbers. We got to be in the room. We, we need to. We're the majority in the world. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. So what do you do when, because I know, I mean, this conversation obviously has been had, um, it's being had within the documentary community where, and I, I have heard you know, because um, full disclosure, I work in a nonprofit. Renell works in a nonprofit, but I, I've heard of people like being a people of color being in rooms with with uh, white folks, and um, the conversation. The wife says, "Okay, well, let's talk about what you need," and clearly stated what is needed, and then um, those needs expressed by by pops are essentially they're told why those things can't be done. So like, what, what do people, particularly people of color, do when they're in that situation? Because, okay, you've been told, like, you want to hear, but you're not, you're not basically, you're not willing to, 
there's like an unwillingness to actually do the action of making the, the specific changes. The one thing that I promote is to say, you either have us in the room or we're not going to participate and we're not going to work with you until you do. And you need to, you need to have that as a realization because you are representing white supremacy and we're trying to do away with that. So if you don't understand that you need to have us in this room to make those decisions and to focus what's needed, then we're going to call you out and say, we can't work with you and you no one should be working with you until you do that. And so it's very important that we stick to that. And really, here's the other thing that I want to encourage people to do is to have a different mindset. Just because they've said no in the past, we can't take that. We have to be more active in pushing back. And we also have to change our mindset so that someone said, change the way you think about it. Change the way you do things. If we keep saying that George Floyd died because he was Black, Mm -mm. That, that is not the way to frame it. That is not the way to frame it. Because we'll always be the deflective one. George Floyd didn't die because he was Black. He died because those white men were racist. That's the way to turn it around and say, it's on you. It's not on me. It's on you. So you. So again, that kind of thinking, because we need to rethink things in a more creative way. And not just saying things, but really dealing with the fact that policing and the way it's been done needs to be rethought. And, and the other thing that's so important is that we don't have to recreate the wheel. People are already doing the work. And so this term of defunding the police or defunding this and understanding what that really means and how to rethink policing. But if you think about, you know, how they've been defunding schools forever, I mean, like how many times, like I don't have children, but you know, I contribute to like, like school drives, you know, for people who need kids who needs backpacks and for teachers who need stuff because the schools are underfunded. Right. So, you know, I think that I don't want to go into police brutality. That's so a whole much. other, yeah, that's, that's a whole, a whole other, other thing, yeah. but I'm just saying <laughs> right. in general, when you're talking to people who are supposedly holding the reins on money for films or um, everything. It's like, well, we have to protest you. Can't keep doing this. We're gonna sit out until you realize that we need you. You need us. We are your market. We are, you know, you can't we, we create doing the this. content. But also, I think it's also. I mean, you speak about the name, the need to kind of clarify language around things because I think, um, particularly when we use the phrase like you know, having making sure that we are in the room. That means different things to different people. Because I, I, I think for some folks, like having us in the room means like, oh, if you're in the room, that's all we need to do. You, we have to be a part of the decision-making process, not to invite us into the room so you can listen to our ideas. Right. That's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's not enough. And you don't even need to listen to our ideas. We can implement ideas if we are decision makers, not share with you our ideas that you then decide, well, I like this one. I don't like this one. Let's change this one. You know, please. No, that's. What's, there's that, there's that song that's this a song that says, um, a move 
B-I-T-C-H, get out the way, get out the way, get out the way. <laughs> I don't know that okay, one, but, <laughs> but you're, you're hipping me to it. Okay. All but right. But people, people need to get out the way. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, and so just let's call it out as it is. This is white supremacy. We're not going to have this anymore. All right. So stop. And I'm going to put myself in your face until you do. I mean, I just have to, you know, I really do. And I'm good at that. I'm really good at putting myself in your face and reminding you. But Denise, you, you do that so nicely and so diplomatically. Like, like I, I've seen, I've seen you in action. You know, it is, it's, 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 it's beautiful to watch. So it's like you don't let people get away with. No, I don't. I really don't. I, I, you know, and then sometimes I hear something, and I say, okay, you have to pick your battles because you need to just be quiet right now, and then at the right time, pull it out. Okay. And say, remember when you said this? Remember when you did this? Okay, here's an example of how we need to change this. Let's yeah, move on. Yeah. You know? Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you just about some of the work you've done, particularly your whole um, race relay series. Yeah, because I, mean, I know you alluded to it um, earlier, but uh, Denise, I actually partnered with the California African American Museum and USC and I know Rodelia Shaw, the filmmaker, was also worked with you. So tell us about, about that, that whole endeavor, multimedia endeavor. All right. Yes. Um, I have been conducting race relay circles, bringing people of different ethnicities together for about seven years now um, to talk about race. And this stemmed from me and two other creative partners inviting friends to sit in a circle and to talk about it. And when we did that, we realized that there was a production there. And so we created something called Race Relay, which is a multimedia production involving particular stories about race and how it's affected people, combined with images of what's going on in the world about race, and putting that in a presentation where then people then respond to the actors and then at the very end get to say and speak their own truth around racism. So it was, uh, it was trying to get people to understand that we can create a safe space to talk about race if you focus on your story, as opposed to pontificating about what the politicians are doing and what they think Black should be doing or whatever, but just talk about how individually it's affecting you. And so we've done that production now. Every time we do the production, we do it on behalf of a particular a nonprofit organization. So for example, I worked with a Filipino organization where we got stories from Filipinos about how racism has affected them. And then I took those stories and had actors reenact the monologues, and then I'd have clips on, on screens. If the audience is in a circle, the circle is surrounded by three large screens, and the screens um, interact and are interspersed first with their comments about racism. So for example, we'll have a clip of Trevor Noah talking about being called the N-word. Okay, he does a little clip on that. We also have a clip on white students talking about what it is to be white to them. We also have a clip where you'll see people, the police 
acting with brutality towards black people. And all of these different images are woven in some of the monologues that are being spoken. So for the big piece that we did for USC, I um, wrote a proposal and got funding through their Visions and Voices project of USC. And I designed it so that USC staff, faculty, and students would submit to USC their particular stories about how racism has affected them. USC gathered those stories, I took those stories, and then made a theatrical piece with um, eight actors to represent different parts of those stories. And in addition to that, I then had clips from, like I said, I had C.K. Louis doing his piece about how great it is to be white interspersed with Trevor Noah talking about the N-word, uh, talking also with clips of police brutality and um, other people giving a white perspective of what it's like to be white, but the actors were primarily people of color sharing their stories, okay? So I got the, the funding to do that and put it together. It was a wonderful process because USC was so behind everything. I worked with the School of Cinema I worked with the Dramatic Arts and the School of Public Policy. They all were involved in this great effort to make this a piece. And then I said, okay, I do not want this shown on USC's campus. I want the students to get out of their comfort zone and see and work with people from the surrounding community, which is why then we selected the California African American Museum was simply blocks away from USC. Right across the street right across the street which is so funny because so many students had never been there really? and of course of course they you know they wouldn't think of going to a it's museum across the street. it's across the street and i said we're not going to do this performance at usc we're going to do this at cam so that the community can be in the room with you so that when we do this circle it's not just usc people it's going to be community people we did that for three nights it was amazing and what was so great about it was that it starts off with drumming. I have an amazing drummer, Christo Polani, who starts off the evening with a drum circle. Everyone in the audience has a percussive instrument or drum, and he gets everyone in there drumming together so that there is a feeling of unity and there's this feeling of just comfort playing together. And then the piece begins, and the piece has moments of of uh, uh, sobriety, uh, seriousness, humor, so that it's not all heavy hitting. It's not all, this is what racism is. This is what's going on in the country. It's like looking at all of these different things that are happening in the country, both from a comedian's point of view, which can be very telling, to other students, and then the actors in the middle of the circle telling these heartfelt stories. Um, I mean, there's one example of a woman, and these are all true stories, which just makes it beautiful. There's one mother who's white, who has two white biological children, has two black children adopted. And she says, when I hear white people say that racism doesn't exist, I see it every day with the way in which my different children are treated. And she says, let me give you one example. Have you ever had a shoe salesman ask if your children's feet are clean before they try on shoes. She said, they always ask my black kids that, they don't ask my white kids that. So examples like that that are very heartfelt and are wrenching sometimes to hear gets the audience primed 
to then open up. So the very end of this piece, which runs about an hour and 20 minutes, we then say, okay, now it's your turn to talk. I have a Native American talking stick and I hand it to whoever wants to speak. And everyone always wants to speak because everyone has a story about how racism has affected them. Whether or not they say, I've never seen it, you know, I was growing up blind and I grew up with a racist family, to, of course, people of color who can tell you some amazing stories and terrible things that have happened to them. And we always run out of time. So the point is to always do this hopefully with the intention of bringing people back again in two weeks to talk about it. And what we did, in addition to having that theatrical piece, we had virtual reality piece that went with it so that we shot a story that was based on one of the stories. And then when they came back the following week or two weeks, I think, they had virtual reality headsets to then re-emphasize what had been seen before to talk. So there were people who came that first time and then they came back. The second time they came back, there weren't any actors. We didn't have all the screens up, but we did have the virtual reality program that they could look at. And then we'd say, okay, now let's talk about this. And um, everyone said it was successful. Uh, Cam was very pleased. They said they had never had a turnout like this before where people would sit there, watch this, become emotional and talk. Um, USC was extremely pleased with it because students, again, faculty, and in fact, at one of the performances, a woman came up to me and said, you know, that story that you told about that woman growing up in a, in a community where they were cursed at? She said, that was my story. And I hugged her because, you see, USC had done a good job of telling everyone on the campus, please submit your stories. You can be anonymous if you like, but it might be involved in this production. And so that's the point of Race Relay is that people get to relay their stories about race. We connect with them and hopefully we continue the conversation about race relations. So that was Race Relay, and I've done it several times, and it was great. I got the grant from USC. Um, we had done things with um, Common Peace, the Mamie Clayton Library, when it was still in existence. And yeah, so, um, and every time, people want more. People want to, to talk about it, as long as it's in an environment that's safe, where there's not gonna be yelling, where there's not gonna be finger pointing. Because I say, you know, we have to learn about racism within ourselves and within our surrounding areas. And the only way we can learn about that is of course have some history, but also learn about how it's affecting you and sharing your story. And that way we can support each other as we grow and learn. I want to acknowledge um, that you are a black mom. Yes, I'm so proud of her. And I tell her, never forget that you are, when you finish college, she's at Amherst College now in Massachusetts. Um, wonderful school. Um, I said, when you graduate, you will be fourth generation college educated, Woo! which is amazing. Yeah. And what's so amazing is not only is it fourth generation on my side of the family, but fourth generation on her biological family. So is that deeper what? And, you know, I just want to give a little shout out to my family who, you know, my father, who was the youngest of 10 children, who was the valet of Mary McLeod Bethune. Who, that's how he paid for his tuition to go to, to Bethune-Cookman College. Mary McLeod Bethune wrote his recommendation letter to W.E.B. Du Bois, okay? And that's how he got to Morehouse, all right? So my father is a Morehouse man. My father 
and yes, and a Bethune Cookman man. Okay, so you know, and and became a principal of a school in Northern Little Rock, who stood up to the white board of education because they didn't give the black schools decent books. Okay, and married my mother, went to you know, and and became a principal and high school teacher. And so that's on my father's side. On my mother's side, my mother not only went to Arkansas State. But her mother went to Arkansas State and her father, Diggy Institute. So my mother's parents, my mother who was born in 1918, her parents, both her parents went to college, okay? So that's why, you know, I tell, I'm very proud of this heritage. Um, I knew when I was a young kid how wonderful Black people were. <laughs> I had, you know, and, and, and so, because my dad had pictures of Mary McLeod Bethune, my father had some of his college papers from W.E.B. Du Bois, where Du Bois' name, I still have them. Where has, you know, and in fact, I'm, I, I mentioned that to Cornell West when I, when I met him once. He said, oh, I want to see those papers. So, you know, I've always been a proud Black person. Okay, and so I, I feel very fortunate that I had some very well-educated parents that taught me that and never had self-esteem problems. I had a healthy ego. And someone said, racism is terrible, but blackness is not, okay? Black people don't spend all their time uh, dealing with racism in terms of you know fighting. Sometimes there's a state saying that um, sometimes the way we fight racism is to bring our black children up with understanding what joy is. That's the way that you can fight racism as well, okay? So many of us breathe a huge sigh of relief when we heard that incredible news about the election of the Biden-Harris ticket. That weekend, the Arts Administrators of Color organization had the annual conference, which they held virtually. In one group, one person pointed out that BIPOCs navigating predominantly white institutions might begin to see support withdrawn from diversity, equity, and inclusion training because, as someone explained, Kamala's in, so racism is over, and so is sexism. There is also a meme going around on Facebook jokingly saying, now we can get back to normal racism. But as Denise says, we can't go back to normal because normal wasn't working for a lot of us. So, what will you do differently? And what coalitions will you build to collectively claim your power? If we work together, we can demand accountability, which will make it a much better world for all of us. Thank you so much for listening today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.